this morning, we get to finish up. And I'm excited. So if you got your Bibles, please take some, uh, open it, 2 Peter chapter 1. If you got, uh, got it on your phone or whatever, that would be great. One of the hard pieces when you're like four weeks into a series is knowing that not everybody's been able to be here every week is how do you summarize it and bring it all together? And so if I could put everything into a nutshell, it's this. One, in this life, you're going to face difficulties. It's going to happen. We live in a fallen world. Bad stuff happens. Now, I know that there are some Christians who believe that because they belong to Jesus, that gives them a get-out-of-difficulties pass card, right? Uh, my sense is if you live life long enough, you find out that's not true. Now, the beautiful thing is that you have Jesus who walks it with you, but it doesn't mean that you don't face it. And what Peter has been trying to remind these believers, these believers going through persecution, difficulty, hard times, is that we can actually thrive, blossom, become the best sense of who we are as we lean into Jesus. Why? Because he has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He has given us precious and magnificent promises that we can stand on, that we can, we can root our life into. And as we lean into those things, we'll become more like Christ. Because here's the thing about difficulties. They'll either make you better or it'll make you bitter. They'll either help you blossom as you lean into Christ or as you turn away from Christ. They are, it's going to become cancer to your soul. So I'm fresh out of Bible college. I'm back at my home church through some weird, unique circumstances, and I become the youth pastor. And it was this incredible object lesson for me uh, for within a year, we had two families in that church that lost a child. Now, I can't imagine anything being more painful than losing a child. I mean, that would just be, be devastating. And what was interesting to me was watching them go through this, again, within about a year's period, and how how they, they responded, and, and then what happened. So the one couple, uh, the one couple, man, they, they just leaned into Jesus. They grew. And you could see the change. I mean, this compassionate, this, this heart of service, wanting to minister to others. In fact, he, he ultimately became a deacon in a church. She a deaconess. They, they, just, they just blossomed. Their, their other son, as he came into the youth group, you know, and had a heart to follow after the Lord. The other couple, not so much. In fact, they got angry. Got angry at God, which... Well, let's be honest, you can kind of understand that. Got angry with people. They became bitter in their spirit. Uh, I remember their, their son, their other son, came into the junior high group. And my junior high youth pastor went out to, to visit with them. And 
he came back, he said, that was the strangest call I've ever made. I've never been in a home that was so cold, and not physically cold, but emotionally. The distance, you could cut it with a knife. Now, what was that fascinating, because he came from a really dysfunctional home himself. And sure enough, within another year, they were divorced. The home is, is split up, just mad and angry at God. Destroyed them. Well, what's the difference? Well, one leans into Jesus, one doesn't. And, and, and here's the danger. The danger is we go through hard times and sometimes anger, frustration, you know, Lord, I don't understand, happens. And, and I think that's a natural response. But what do you do with that? You see, what the enemy's going to whisper in your ear is that, hey, God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't really care about what you're going through. And so the whole point here is, is just leave him. Do it. Figure it out yourself. So you turn your back to God. You decide to go your own way. It's not going to work well. That going to blossom. Others, I think, is more theological. They know they're mad at God. That doesn't seem like a really good theological place to be. And so it's like, well, I'm just going to kind of turn and do my own way because I don't want them to know that I'm mad at them. Like, God doesn't know your heart, right? And that bitterness, that anger... See, what God wants you to do, what Jesus wants you to do, even if you're angry, even if you don't understand, is just bring your anger, bring your, hot, your frustration, and bring it to him. Lean into him. Tell him all about it. He already knows anyway. Share your heart with him. After the 5 o'clock service, a man came up and said, 21 years ago. I remember it was like yesterday. A situation happened and I was so mad and angry and ended up it wasn't as bad as I thought. But he says, I can remember I was on my knees, on my couch, yelling at the Lord and pounding this couch. And I said, so cool, right? Because you're on your knees, you're leaning into Jesus. And he said, yeah, and his faithfulness. And I look back and I realize how I didn't respond well, but God was so faithful to me in that time. And I remember it like it was yesterday. See, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has given us his promises. As we've looked at in the end of verse 4, God has actually given us his nature. And now what we're called to do as we go through hard times is lean into him. Grow in our faith. Turn to him, even, even with these emotions, and allow him to, to make us more like Jesus because that's how we thrive. That's how, the more we become like Jesus, the more kind, the more compassionate, the more loving, the more gracious, the better person we become. And so what Peter now has been saying, we last week started here in verse 5, is that we have a responsibility in this. He says, now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and moral excellence knowledge, your knowledge, self-control. That, that's where we got to, that we, we have to apply diligence. The idea is to bring alongside. This is what we've got to bring to the table, diligence with haste, focus. Now again, sometimes people go, well, wait a minute. I'm a part of this? Well, salvation, justification, no. Jesus paid it all. He did it all. All we have to do is believe. But now in sanctification, yes, we are called 
to bring diligence. Now, he's provided all we need. He has these promises, but these are all things, and it's interesting when you look at them, they're all things that we can bring, that we can focus on. So what we talked about last week, the first thing is called moral excellence. I, I, the idea there is moral heroism. That, that we, a, a hero lives for a greater cause. So, so we don't live for ourselves. We don't live for this world. We live for Jesus. We live for that day when we will be with him. We, we live for eternal things, right? We don't store up for ourselves treasures here on earth. We store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. This is exactly what Jesus did. He was a hero. He came and endured the cross because he saw the day that we would come to know him. And that day we would be forever united. That's what we're called to live for. This is Paul saying, for me to live as Christ. Live for a greater cause, moral heroism. To that moral heroism, what we're told to do is that um, having brought our best effort, I got going too fast. I'm sorry, I'll catch you up on the notes. To our moral heroism, what we're called to do is to bring spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom, knowledge. Remember, we talked about how Jesus is truth and he's light. And when we come, we come out of the darkness into the light. And our world has this way of telling us what's important and the things that will bring us uh, significance and security and purpose and meaning in life but but yet it, it always seems to crumble around us but in Jesus he comes he says no this is what you live for you live for me you live for eternal things that's where you're going to find meaning that's where you're going to find purpose that's where you're going to find that sense of significance and security and so now we add to our, our moral heroism, living for Christ, we now add the knowledge of living in light of what he says is important and how we are to live our lives and to serve one another and to care for one another and if we're not to be about us. And in that, we add that spiritual wisdom. We live for the things that have great value. The third thing that we looked at last week is he says now to that wisdom, what we need to add is self-control, the holding ourselves in, the disciplines of saying, you know what, this isn't about us. In fact, I didn't mention last week because I was really pressed for time. But if you skip over to, to chapter 2, really this idea of self-control is a contrast with these false teachers that he's going to take on in chapter 2. In fact, you look at verse 2 uh, of chapter 2. He says, now many follow their own sensuality. Verse 3, and in their greed they exploit you. These false teachers of the gospel, they are not living for heaven's wisdom. They are not living with a moral heroism. And they're not living with self-control. They're after all the passions of this world. And really there's a contrast. Jesus, who lived with great self-control. Why? Because he was focused on other things. That's what we're called to do, that spiritual discipline. And now, as we pick it up today, he says, and in your self-control, the next thing you need to add is perseverance. Perseverance, endurance with tenacity. Why? Because this life is tough, right? 
bad stuff happens. Then on top of it is believers, you and I have an enemy. He's trying to trip us up, right? He's trying to get us not to live for that day we stand before Jesus, but to live for the here and now. Because that's where he can sow the corruption back in our life. That God has allowed us to escape. And then you think about it, you live in this culture that's a a world of darkness. We live for a different reason. We don't live for the things of this world. And the whole world says this, this is what we're to live for. No, we live for another day. We live in wisdom that is different than this world. We have self-control. Quite honestly, that brings pushback. Oh, so you think you're better than me. Holier than thou. No, no, I'm just living for another day. Oh, so, so you're better than me, right? And now we get the pushback of the world. And what he's trying to say, so what you need now is perseverance. Endure. Don't quit. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give in. Don't stop. Don't quit. Tenacity. Stay with it. Man, this, we're in the midst of the battle, right? You think of Paul telling Timothy, endure hardness as a good soldier, Jesus Christ. We're in the midst of the battle here. Don't stop. Don't quit. Stay with it. The grittiness of tenacity. Now, what you may not know about my life is that for 31 years... I have had this living example of tenacity that I have lived with in the person of my wife, Tammy. Now, I know she's four foot 11, and I know she's as cute as a button, and she comes across as sweet and kind and gentle, and she is all those things, but she is the most tenacious person you have ever met in your life. I learned this early on, we were dating. And we would go out and shoot baskets because she's a basketball. You know, even though four foot eleven, she grew up in the Philippines. Philippines tend to be a little uh, vertically challenged themselves, but they love basketball. So she loves basketball. And one of the first things I learned was, number one, we were never leaving the basketball court until she made the perfect shot. For those of you who shoot baskets, you know, it's, it's the perfect switch. It doesn't touch the rim. It's got the perfect rotation. And if it takes 10 minutes or 15 minutes or an hour, we're not leaving until we leave on the perfect shot. Then the other thing I found is we're not going to leave as we have played one one-on-one or we play the little game of horse until somebody wins and I'm exhausted you know it's like no 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 we're gonna play one more time in fact we we used to play basketball uh we we would play anybody two on two and quite honestly we were pretty good because they always underestimated her and uh, we finally had to stop because we, we had never been beaten uh, except once. Two guys had played college ball, and then we beat them, and then they were mad because nobody had ever beat them at a camp. But she's five months pregnant with our middle child, and she started pulling up short on her jump shots. And that's when I had to say, all right, let's set the tenaciousness down. But that's just her. I mean, and, and oh, man, don't even let me get started on when she gets going after the house, right? This is the time to clean the house. It's just, it's just work, and it's Katie barred the door. You're just you're going to get it done. And I learned we, when we were early married, we'd go out and we would run, right? And as a man, you're always supposed to be the strong one. And I kept waiting for her to say, hey, I'm a little tired. I'm dying. I almost died because... Because she's never, ever, ever, ever in our life has ever stopped first. 
It's always been me because she's tenacious. That's who she is. In fact, I don't even know if I'm supposed to tell this, but uh, <laughs> she came to me over the holidays and said, you know, my, my arm's been hurting me a little bit, kind of keeping me up at night. And I'm thinking, it's really weird for her to say something like that, but we, you know, we had a family around. And, and our little three-year-old granddaughter, uh, Joey, is her shadow, right? And we're thinking, oh, you've been picking her up a lot. Um, but finally, uh, she said, well, I should probably go get she's been living with a completely torn rotator cuff. And the most I got was, yeah, my arms would bother me a little bit. I'm thinking, I, oh, I would have been dying. But that's just her. Don't quit. Don't give up. Stay with it. And, and you know where a lot of times the, the quitting comes? The quitting comes in the fact that we're supposed to be self-controlled. We're supposed to live for that day, right? Live in the wisdom of, uh, of the Lord, the, his light. And, you know, but none of us are perfect in that, right? None of us completely do that at every moment. And so the enemy says, man, you screwed up. You failed. You're a loser. Man, how do you think God could ever use you? Just, you've fallen. Just, just give up. And I love what Paul says in Philippians. He says, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upper call. You've got to get back up. You've you got to stand in his promise that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to repent. So, so what got me to that point where I did fail? And, and how do I set good guard line, guard, guardrails into my life? You know, the self-control so I don't get there again. But you get back up and you keep going. You keep going. Why? Because we're living for that day. We're going to see Jesus. We're living for eternal things. You can't quit. You can't give up. There's a, many of you know, I, I love gospel music and uh, sung in a quartet for, for years and years. And there's a song we did a number of years ago. I just loved it. Uh, the, the words were so powerful. It's called, I Will Go On. But it says this, I repent for the moments I've spent recalling all the pain and failure in my past. See, that's where sometimes people quit. These kind of get mucked up in that and I repent for dwelling on the things beyond my power to change the chains that held me fast now we get stuck but what it says is I will go on my past I leave behind me I gladly live in his mercy and his love he is joy he is peace he is grace he is sweet release I know he is, and I know that I am his, so I will go on. Go on. Add to your self-control perseverance. Don't quit. Don't give in. Don't give up. You keep, you, when you fall, you get back up. You touch his grace and his forgiveness, and you go on. Now, to our perseverance, what we're called to do is to add godliness. That's kind of an interesting word godliness. So I've got to be honest with you, when I went to it, the idea was, well, we're going to try to, you know, we need to become godly. But the, the problem that I struggled with is, well, wait a minute. 
do, do I have that ability in me to become godly, right? All of these things, perseverance, self-control, these are things that I can do. And I think it's kind of him that's got to make me godly, right? So it was interesting to get into the, the understanding of this word. And really this word means reverence for God. And in the reverence for God, that, that response that you and I should have of, of obedience to him. Uh, the best way I could probably explain it is this idea of personal worship. That, that I practice this, this thing in my life that I know that, that God is God and he's my God and I've chosen to follow him. And so now this great act of worship that I give is to walk in obedience to him, to follow his precepts, his truth. Now, I think we get this idea of worship so messed up. We think, well, we worship the Lord when we sing, which we can or that our great act of worship is lifting our hands or saying hallelujah or amen. And all those can be acts of worship. But folk, the greatest act of worship that you will ever give in your life is a life of obedience. It's submission to the will and, and the word of God. I mean, isn't that what God's problem with Israel was? You bring all your sacrifices, right? Worship. But your hearts are far from me. The greatest act of worship that we give is to say, Lord, I'm submitting myself to your will, your truth, what you're doing in my life, and I'm going to follow you in obedience. It's almost that idea of, of practicing the presence of God in my life, that he is with me. And so as I respond to my wife, as I walk and walk through today and I respond to people, when I'm alone, the things where I let my mind go, and let my, my heart think upon all those things. God is there. He is the one that I'm trying to please. He's the one that is the focus of my life. I think it was John Calvin who kind of motto in life was Coram Deo. In the presence of God. Living with the sense that my whole life is in the presence of God. And I want every moment... When I'm with people, when I'm by myself, to be a sacrifice of praise. To be lived in submission to what he's called us to do. I think that's what Paul had in mind in 1 Corinthians. He said, whatever you do, whatever you do, you eat, you drink, right? We do that every day. Do it all to the glory of God. That's what we're called to, to do. Then to our godliness, we're to add brotherly kindness. This, uh, this word that... Uh, Philadelphia, we're familiar, you know, with the different words for, for love in Greek. This is Philadelphia. Uh, the idea of brotherly kindness, we're to serve one another, we're to minister to one another. What's interesting is when you study the different authors of the Bible, you find they sometimes have different themes. Like you read the book of Mark, you keep seeing this word immediately, immediately. It's kind of Mark's way of telling the story of Christ. You have John who loves some of the pictures and the stories, light and dark and all, all of that. Peter, when you look at his books, this idea of loving others is something that's really important to him. You go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, or 1 Peter, and you see it all the time. So in chapter 1, since you have in obedience to the truth purified yourself for a sincere love for the brother and fervently love one another from the heart. 
few verses later in chapter 2, honor all men, love the brotherhood. He comes back to it a few chapters later. He says, above all, above everything else I'm telling you, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So what we are to add now to this perseverance, to this practicing the presence of God in my life, that my whole life is lived in submission to him as a praise offering. Now, what we need to do is, is focus on loving one another, taking Jesus' command that you are to love one another even as I have loved you. This is to be a focus in our life. And one of the things I guess I struggle with and I wonder how we play this out and In this culture where we are living right now, and isolation has been a big thing this last year, right? Stay home, don't get close, live on Zoom, right? You know, the command there is still for brotherly love. The command is still there for community. That's why we talk about it all the time. We weren't made to be isolated. You know, in this world, we need to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Well, you only do that in community. And not in a community like this, because we come in, we sing, then you all listen to me, and then we go out. No, smaller communities where we get to know people. As Connie and, and Kevin were sharing with this, and you care and you love people. And yet it was kind of interesting. I, I looked, uh, Tammy and I are doing a Zoom, because we're, you know, providing for the distance for those that still need that uh, connect group starts Wednesday first time no, I can't even remember the last time this happened we're like half full I'm thinking and it's not just about mine I didn't have time to go look at anybody else's but I thought man of all times these, these things should be over full and, and people waiting to get in because we need this sense of community. We need brothers and sisters speaking in our lives. We're, we're all facing a world here of such uncertainty. If there's ever a time, folks, we need to be engaged with one another. And connect groups or a Bible study class or a ministry team, somewhere, some way, we need to add this idea of brotherly kindness, what we're called to do. And to that, the last word he uses there is love. And again, if you're familiar with the Greek terms, this is agape. But this is kind of the love for others, wanting their best. This is about living and sharing Jesus, sharing, showing the world that Jesus has made a difference in our life. It's the same idea that Paul gives us in 1 Thessalonians. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound, first of all, in your love for one another. That's our first priority. But then beyond that, for all people, we are to love, we are to show the characteristics of Christ. Now notice what he says here in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me take you back. How do we thrive in darkness? How do we thrive in the midst of difficulties? How do we thrive in the midst of persecution, trials, testing difficult times in our life it's becoming more like christ so the ultimate thrive for any of us to get to the best 
version of ourselves is that the more we become like Jesus because he will make us more loving, more kind, more thoughtful, more, more, have more wisdom, all of those pieces in our life. And what now Peter adds to that are two things. Number one, as you thrive and you blossom in Christ, you're also going to become more useful to the master. He's going to be able, because you're more like him now, to, to use you in ministering to other people, to use you as salt and light, to use you as that one. I couldn't help but think of that passage in 2 Timothy where Paul tells Timothy that, you know, when in, in a house there are both vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And if we will walk with him, we become vessels of honor and we're fit, we're ready for the master's use. That's, that's who he wants us to be. That's who I want to be. I would imagine that's who you want to be. Well, how, do, how are we fit for his use? How are we useful to him? It's by growing and becoming more like Jesus. And not only that, the last thing he also says then is fruitful. Why? Because the ultimate fruit in our life is becoming like Christ. The, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, those are all Christ-like things. And, and the more we become like Christ, those are the things that bubble out from us. Not only that, we're more useful. So now we see more fruit because we see people in our lives who we're ministering to, who are growing in Christ, or they're hearing the testimony of the Lord, they're seeing our life. God is using that to draw them to himself. It brings fruitfulness. We're thriving, we're fruitful, we're useful. We're becoming the best version of who we can be. And it's not because of us, but it's because of Jesus. God says we can thrive, even in the difficult times. It's as we lean into Christ. I would just remind you of one last thing, and I'll bring this to a close. Verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply. Faith, that's where it always starts. It always starts with faith. Because everybody who's a child of God has gotten there because of faith. Because the Christian life starts in faith in Jesus, that he died for us, faith that he has saved us, faith that we have invested in him when we've asked him to become our savior. If you've not come to faith in Christ, it all begins there by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And then once you come to that point of faith, what we are called to do is to supply these other things as we lean into Jesus and we become more like him.